Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 200. Can you believe that we've done this 200 times? That's kind of hard to believe, but there it is. We have. And I don't know, you may be one of those stalwart true bluers who've listened to 200 of these babies. And if, if so, then well done to you, right? So the thing I want to talk about uh, here is our, what, what is acceptable evidence in our current court system. And I, I want to propose, I want to suggest that our, our rules of evidence need to catch up with what technology has done. I would like to propose that we start agitating for a moratorium on digital evidence in order to convict someone of a crime. Not, maybe not an absolute moratorium, but I think we ought to uh, revisit what is acceptable. Let's say there's a crime committed or an alleged crime committed, and there is surveillance tape. There's, surveil- there's surveillance uh, footage. In order to introduce that into court, everybody involved has to believe and has to trust that that evidence was not manipulated, altered, or falsely generated. What is the protection? In short, I'm, I'm asking, what is the protection of someone that is, who's going to be railroaded for a crime he didn't commit? What protection is there against a deep? fake video. So, and this extends into everything. When, when the cops swoop down on somebody's house and they seize his computer and they haul his computer off and then three weeks later announce that they found a treasure trove of child pornography on this guy's computer. Question, how hard would it be to frame that guy? <laughs> it's just... It's just one thumb drive, right? Just one thumb drive. Uh, so what you're, what you're doing is what we need to learn how to do is think biblically about the requirement to have independent confirmation. A person ought, must not be convicted unless there's two or three witnesses, independent confirmation that this person has been guilty of this crime. We are living in a time when the establishment is pretty corrupt. And, uh, you know, just take for an example, the January 6th disturbance at the U.S. Capitol and politics has hijacked absolutely everything. Politics is, is, uh, has gotten into everything. You remember in the run-up to all this up in um, uh, Wisconsin, you remember when protesters against uh, Governor Walker sat in in the state capitol? You know, they, they intruded into the state capitol. We're protesting, wouldn't go, would, you know, wouldn't cooperate, cooperate. And this was acclaimed as democracy in action. And then something very similar happens with the, uh, with the U.S. Capitol, and it's denounced as the worst thing that's ever happened to our nation since the, uh, since the Civil War. Well, I, I, got, I got off track. My point is that there are tens of thousands of hours of surveillance videotape of that episode at the Capitol that 
have not been released. So if you've got video cameras, let's say you've got surveillance cameras at an intersection, traffic cameras or something, and they capture a a heist of a nearby gas station and footage from one of the cameras is released and three of the cameras, the footage is lost. Or the cops have uh, body cams, but they didn't turn them on. Or everything is selectively altered. What we, no, no society can function with a court system that is respected. And by respected, I mean a court system which, when the decision is delivered, all sides accept it. That's, that's a respected court system. If you want to undermine everybody's faith or belief in your court system, meaning that when a decision is handed down, nobody accepts it or hardly anyone accepts it, what you're angling for, what you're asking for is a, a state of anarchy. And, and if you have highly manipulable evidence, digital evidence, audio recordings, taps, uh, things seized from people's computers, surveillance cameras, all, you know, if you have all of those things that are in the hands of the people that you don't trust, then what's going to happen? Well, it's going to degrade the confidence that people have in their court system. And when that happens, you're headed for trouble. So uh, at the very least, I would urge that if, at the very least, if digital evidence is uh, to be introduced, then there has to be proof independent confirmation proof of a chain of custody for that digital evidence and everybody who is on everybody who's in that chain is subject to criminal penalties if they monkey with anything if they lose anything they shouldn't lose if they didn't keep track of it there has to be uh, you have to have people who can vouch for the integrity of this evidence all along the line and they have to be subject to the same Standards as everybody else. Always we will be All right, continuing, aren't we? We are continuing, aren't we? Episode 200 of the podcast. As we continue our homartiology study, we come to the verb that means to persecute. Uh, last time we talked about the word that's used, the word that's used for persecutor, but this word is the verb for persecute. That word is dioko, dioko. And it is used in various ways. Obviously, when it is used in the passive, it means to be persecuted. And that's not a, it's not a sin to be persecuted. So that's not a problem. It can also mean to follow after or to follow. And that's not a sin either. So the sense of to follow someone is simply a, a thing that some people do. But if you're following after them to harry them or to, to strike at them or to get at them, then that's... Um, that's what persecution would be. But by far and away, the primary meaning of this word is to persecute, pure and simple, and this is very clearly a sin. In many of the instances, the instruction simply assumes the fact of persecution, and the ethical teaching is encouragement for the persecuted or instruction on how to respond when it happens to you. So this is a little different than from some of the other sins in the New Testament. When the Bible says not to get drunk, it's telling the person reading the exhortation to not get drunk. When the Bible says not to murmur or complain, it's telling the person reading not to murmur or complain. But when it's talking about the sin of persecution, it's telling the person reading how to respond when someone else disregards this 
requirement of Scripture. A blessing is pronounced, for example, on those who are persecuted for Christ's sake, Matthew 5, 10, and 11. There are many passages, so we're just going to skim the surface here. How are we to respond to persecution? Well, we are to love and to bless those who do it, praying for them. That's Matthew 5.44. We are to flee from them, Matthew 10.23. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. That's in Romans 12.14. And Paul reports that same attitude in 1 Corinthians 4.12. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. That's Matthew 5.12. I think I may have garbled, I may have given the wrong citation. Paul, the thing I just read was Matthew 5.12. But Paul uh, cites the same thing as Romans 12.14 in 1 Corinthians 4.12. Sorry about that. Persecuted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed, 2 Corinthians 4.9. Some of the instances of the word are simply warnings. We are to prepare for it and not to be surprised by it when it happens. We see that in Matthew 23.34. We see it in Luke 21.12 and in John 15.20. There's a deep spiritual reason for this. But as then, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. That's Galatians 4.29. This is talking about Ishmael persecuting Isaac. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. That's Acts 7.52. A surprising number of the relevant passages are talking about Paul's treatment of the church before his conversion. Many of the instances of the New Testament usage of this word are talking about that one-man wrecking crew, the apostle, the Saul of Tarsus. Acts 9, 4, and 5, Acts 22, verses 4, 7, and 8, Acts 26, 11, Acts 26, 14, and 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Galatians 1, 13, and Galatians 1, 23, and Philippians 3.6. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. That's in John 5.16. And this is always the way. This is sort of a perennial reality. Revelation 12.13 says, When the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Okay, carrying on with podcast episode um, 200. Come down to the book review. The book review is a book by Michael Ward of Planet Narnia fame. And uh, this book is called After Humanity, and it is a commentary and gloss and background on uh, uh, on C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. All right, so uh, what Michael Ward, uh, I, I would regard Ward as one of the world's foremost Lewis scholars. He really knows his stuff. And uh, if all you need to do to, is to, to be convinced of that is to read Planet Narnia. He really knows the Lewis corpus backwards and forwards. And then this book, After Humanity, demonstrates the same thing with regard to uh, the abolition of man. So the aboli- a little bit about the abolition of man and then how the how this book is very helpful. The Abolition of Man was written, well, it was originally a series of three lectures given in at the University of Durham in England, and 
it, the the war is not yet over, but it's it, it looks um, it appears to be pretty clear that the Allies are going to win the war. And the the book abolition the book abolition of man is based on these lectures. It's basically putting these three lectures into print. And this was done right around the same time that that hideous strength was released. And Lewis says that uh, in the in the forward to that hideous strength, he uh, he points to a connection between the two books. He he says basically, in that hideous strength, he is treating in fictional form the same themes that he addressed in nonfiction in the Abolition of Man. And that hideous strength is by far and away my favorite novel. I've read it. Oh, I don't know how many times. I think um, I've probably read it fourteen or fifteen times, thereabouts, r- roughly about that uh, that many times. And I've read uh, the Abolition of Man uh, about the same number of times. It's it's up there too. The Abolition of Man is, in my listening and my reading of it, is pretty smooth sailing as far as the argument goes, till the, maybe the last ten pages, and then there's some uphill, you know, a steep rock climb uh, right near the end that I'm, I've been working on getting my mind around. But it's, it's extraordinarily lucid writing. What Ward does is he, uh, he gives us the background of the, the book, the occasion of the book. Uh, Lewis, for example, takes as his foil a book that uh, he, call, he just simply calls the Green Book, which was a textbook used in the schools that got sent to him as a review copy or something. And um, he, he withholds the names of the schoolmasters who wrote the book. But since there's no uh, likelihood of uh, anybody taking offense now, Ward is able to, you know, uh, discusses and goes into the background of the men who wrote that book and, and so on. So when, whenever Lewis quotes some, something or, or uh, refers to something, uh, Ward is able to f- fill in the background. So there's um, commentary on the text itself and filling in a lot of the uh, local details that you might uh, that you might miss if you just were, you know, if you lived in America, let's say, many decades later. Ward really knows Lewis. He really understands Lewis and he is able to draw things from all over. I uh, I had a few uh, they're not even complaints. A few things that I would grumble. Oh, yeah, grumble. Grumbling would be a sin. I don't want to grumble about anything. So I think I think that Ward should. Have, there's a place where he discusses Lewis's views on theistic evolution. I think that Lewis grew increasingly wary about evolution as he got older, and uh, and Ward simply treats it as the views that he expressed in the problem of pain as being. Lewis's view. I think that I think Lewis's views were shifting over time. So that's uh, I would have liked to have seen more uh, nuance uh, in the par- wasn't a big section. I think it was like a paragraph in the short section where he discusses that. Also, I think that there needs to be a little bit of discussion of who the uh, next Pendragon is going to be after Ransom is taken away. And Ward uh, makes a comment where he argues that it's the uh, the baby that the Denistons are going to have. But I think that runs aground on the problem that who's going to be the acting Pendragon while that baby grows up. So I would submit Mark Studdick, but these are, these are topics for another time. 
If you enjoyed this week's episode, check out Doug's book, Productivity, A Practical Theology of Work and Wealth. Order today at canonpress.com.